to this next episode of the Community Psychiatry Podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Rob Godomsky, and this is another episode of the textbook talk of the podcast. And today we're here with Dr. Michael Flom to talk about the chapter on motivational interviewing as a core communication style. Dr. Michael Flom, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Rob. Thanks for having me. So I'm a community psychiatrist. I've spent most of my career in Iowa City, Iowa at the University of Iowa. Population that I've worked with most are adults with serious mental illnesses, primarily psychotic disorders. I'm involved with the AACP. It's been my home organization for a long time. And my kind of secondary home organization that I kind of love is called the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. And I've been in kind of a leadership position in the AACP for a while, but one of the pleasures of being in Mint is just being a regular card-carrying member of this international community of people who train in motivational interviewing. And I'm kind of an outlier in that community because that's not my day job, but motivational interviewing has become really, really important to me. I often tell people that there's there's nothing that has changed kind of the way I see my job, the way I choose to spend my time, the outcomes that I think I'm getting with my patients, and how I feel at the end of a long clinical day more than when I really got this motivational interviewing thing, which was well into my clinical career. I mean, we're talking maybe 15 years ago, and I've been doing this work for a lot longer than that. I don't know many people that talk so passionately about motivational interviewing. So I'd I'd love to hear how you describe it. And even just getting to know you a little, I'm learning that there's even a little more to this journey for you. And there was kind of a hallmark moment where you started to really adopt motivational interviewing more in your life and your practice. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that moment and and kind of how that transformed you? Yeah. I had this interesting job where I was kind of doing a public academic liaison role in the state of Iowa, where my job was to sort of bring uh, mental health resources, clinical, educational, and research to bear on the public mental health system of the state. And this is early 2000s, and SAMHSA was trying to promote evidence-based practices, and I was going around the state sort of singing the evidence-based practice theme songs and trying to get people to sing along. And, And one of the things that we were pursuing was you know, this thing that we were then calling, I think, wellness and recovery or something. It was introducing recovery-oriented language. And a, a mentee of mine who was doing this work with me. Mentors always learn more from mentees than the other way around. Mm, that's so that's true. A great example of this. She pulled out what was, I guess, then the second edition of the kind of core text on motivational interviewing. She said, because I'd give these talks, these rah-rah recovery talks. And at the end of the talks, people would be nodding their head, but I kind of knew that they were really saying like, well, what do you want me to do differently when I go back to my office? And then I didn't know the answer to that question. This this mentee of mine gave me the motivational interview book. She said, read this. I have an idea. And I said, oh, I I know about that motivation. That's that stuff that they use like when people have substance abuse, co-occurring substance abuse. That's in the addictions world. Yeah, I I know about motivational interview. Sure. Why are you giving this to me? And about 20 or 30 pages into that book, my aha moment started. Because I realized she wasn't talking about the little technique that you pull out of your toolkit at the appropriate moment. She was talking about a different way of being and a way of being 
that if you are that way, you are doing recovery-oriented care. Whether you call it recovery-oriented care, whether you call it motivational interviewing, you're doing something differently. Wow. And that started me on the aha moment. Then I had then I had a real aha moment not long after that when I started getting a little deeper into like, what is this thing? And because there's a technical aspect of motivation, there's a spirit, sort of a way of being. And that truly is not specific to MI. Mm -hmm. Any good, real person-centered style where it's truly a collaboration, it's truly, you know, the power dynamic is equal. It's a true acceptance that the way we're going to make progress here is in a partnership. And I'll bring my expertise to the table about the stuff that I know and the experience, but you have expertise about you. And that's not just politically correct. That's, I mean, that's like, I get that you know you, I know this stuff, and together, maybe we can do something that will be helpful. Mm. That's the spirit, but that's not specific to MI. I think that's the spirit of any real person-centered style. I think that's Absolutely. the spirit of shared decision-making. I think that's this, that doesn't have to go along with a technical style. So what is this MI thing? Okay, And I'm actually more interested in the style than the, than, than the, the technical, but the, mm -hmm. the technical blew my mind. And what blew my mind was when I really understood the meaning of what gets called the paradoxical effect of coercion. Mm -hmm. You've heard that term, right? That's a yes. core in my term. But why is that such a core in my term? It's a core in my term because... People don't engage in problematic behaviors for no reason or because they're stupid or because they haven't been told better. They engage in behaviors that are inconsistent with their core values or that are getting them into trouble because there are reasons for it. People drink and use marijuana because it makes them less anxious and able to have a better time in the world. And people, there are two sides and very few people <clears throat> when told about the other side, say, oh, great, that's what I'll do differently. So the the research that that really, as I said, was, was another aha moment for me, is there's like a, a body of psychological, behavioral psychological research that shows quite compellingly that if you and I, or if anyone is talking about something about which there are two legitimate sides and they are ambivalent, the thing that they are most likely to remember from those conversations are the things that they heard themselves give voice to. And more importantly, what we know is that the things they are likely to act on are the things they heard themselves give voice to. So if we think by virtue of being the helpers, the healthcare professionals, that our job is to always take up the pro-health or the good side of this ambivalent things, then not only are we not being helpful, but we're actually probably making it more difficult for people to change. Wow. And when I got that and I realized I've been at this job for like 20 plus years, <laughs> and even though I knew that, you know, telling people what to do and scaring them and telling them how concerned I was and giving them all that, I, well, I knew that it didn't help most of the time. But it never occurred to me that it could be hurting. And when I got that, boy, I had to just sit in the corner for a while and just think about, like, what am I supposed to do? And then I kind of figured out what I was supposed to do, which was sort of get proficient at this MI thing, which doesn't ask me to do some weird reverse psychology game and take up the other side. Rather, what it asks me to do is sit in the middle, recognize the ambivalence, recognize there are two sides, help the person normalize that, 
help them say, yeah, it's normal to have those two sides. They've been having this conversation in their head for years, probably. We make it out loud. I listen with these MI ears where I'm always listening for two kinds of talk. I'm listening for the side that says, I really need to do something about this. I need to change. And I'm listening for all the reasons that I haven't changed yet, or it's really hard to change and why this is serving. And I call those change talk and sustain talk. He is. I do my best to listen actively with accurate empathy to both sides, but I differentially respond. And when I hear that change talk, I'm curious, I'm excited, I'm interested, I reflect it, I ask questions about it, I elaborate it. When I hear the sustained talk, I also listen empathically, I acknowledge it, but I don't elaborate. I just let it be. I roll it. And so what it turns out is that when I have these conversations, people are more likely to give me change talk than they are to sustain talk. And simplistically, the technical aspect of MI comes down to the more change talk they give you, the more likely it is to change and vice versa. If we can just briefly, just can you define change talk and sustain talk for those of us listening that don't know what those terms mean? So sustain talk. The only way I can be a good father is if I'm relaxed enough to be a good father. Marijuana is a natural occurring substance. It's been legalized in all these states. I'm a better person, partner, maybe not driver, but generally, I'm a better person with when I'm high. Oh, but so why are you here? Well, you know, my son's 14, and I kind of don't want him to be doing this. And, you know, I did get in trouble once at work. That's change talk. All the reasons, desires, abilities, and needs why to make the change. The other stuff, why I should sustain. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I think, and thanks for defining that. And I loved hearing this story because I didn't know specifically this and, and it was great to hear it. So, you know, if I could share for a second, you know, I first was exposed to MI actually in medical school, the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I had multiple classes on motivational interviewing in my, I believe, second year. It was either first or second year, but it was before my clinical rotations. And I felt like that was unique to my medical school education. And then for my PGY one year, I had additional classes for my residency training at Einstein in Philadelphia like right off the bat. So I feel like I had quite a bit of exposure to MI, probably more than the average person coming out of residency. And then I remember very early on in the public psychiatry fellowship at Columbia, you coming in to talk to the to the fellows and talking about this kind of technical concept of MI with resisting the right reflex and the coercion the, uh, that, that could come from that. And I had a very similar experience to what you just said, because I'm sitting there and I think it was like 3 p.m. It was like the last class of the day thinking, I don't really know if I want another class on MI right now. I've learned a lot about this. I'm kind of tired. And and you just kind of blew my mind with this idea because I didn't have that exposure to the technical aspect of this. So I, I think that it's really fascinating to hear your experience because it really shows I think in probably how you teach and how you talk about it consistently. Yeah. Well, the thing that I talked to you guys about, and I think that was a more sophisticated aspect of all of this, Absolutely. which is around the power of language. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's tricky about MI is there. there's a book, a real book, 
that's I think the title is like the subtitle is how to get the only evidence-based method to get people to do something in seven minutes or less. I mean, it's, <laughs> and the bibliography is all the MI literature. And I got to tell you, when the MI, the fathers and mothers of MI saw this, they were pretty upset. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that car salesmen had known a lot of the tricks mm -hmm. a long time. This is, you can move people this way. This behavioral psychology stuff works. A car salesman is not likely to come up to you and say, I think you ought to buy the Honda Accord. They're going to come up to you and you're looking at something and they, oh, I see you know your car. So they're going to elicit from you and they're going to partner with you. They recognize your autonomy. They're good at this. On the other hand, their job is to sell you that car. Absolutely. You've got to be a little bit careful because it's anathema to the spirit of any person-centered style to be, co to, I think, to not be transparent and to sort of be manipulative. And there's a danger in this stuff being manipulative. And I think you could do this thing called shared decision-making, which is very different than MI. And basically what shared decision-making does is it's really careful to not differentially respond. If you've got a situation, say a person, the famous example is someone is struggling with the question about whether to go through with the pregnancy in a state that still allows abortion. Sure. And you may say to yourself, now here's the situation in which I don't want to be differentially responding to one side or the other of this ambivalence. That's not my business. I may want to help this person come to a decision. I may use MI techniques when they say, I really got to do, I got to make a decision. I want them to. And we can work together on getting them to make a decision. But I got to be careful not to differentially respond to one or the other side of that ambivalence if I'm truly in what we call equipoise. If I say there are good, good options here and let's work together to find the best option, that's one kind of discussion. And you can have that in a truly person-centered style. That's very different. Like think of a patient that is not taking their antipsychotic medications the way maybe they're recommended. You've got to make a decision. I think as a clinician, are we in an MI moment here from a technical perspective? Am I going to differentially respond to their reasons for and against taking a med? Or are we in a shared decision-making moment here where I think I could live with them not taking a medicine? That's a, a reasonable option. First episode, maybe, I'm not sure it's really a, you know, maybe it was substance-induced. Very different from someone who winds up in the hospital every single time they stop taking their meds in dangerous situations. I'm in an MI moment there, right? So I guess with your class, I was saying real person-centered care We've been talking about it for 20 years, person-centered care. I don't think we've been doing it mm -hmm. to the level that we might. And I think it entails this spirit, which I think we all should be embodying at all times. And then learning technical skills that recognize the power of our language mm. and being able to flow freely and appropriately using different techniques at different times. And so I talk about this as in the chapter, MI as a core communication style, 
it's not really MI as a core communication style. It's sort of real person-centered care, sort of a Carl Rogers way of being, guiding, not directing style. Directing is classic medical model. Not necessarily Carl Rogers, which is my job is to get you to wherever you want to go. I'll help you because I don't want to help you necessarily go wherever you want to go. I My job is guiding somewhere in between, letting you know I know this terrain, you know, and together maybe we can guide you and, and get the most out of this experience. So that's a ramble. I tend to ramble when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> but I really think it's important. I really do. I think most, I think psychiatrists, mental health professionals are coming around. Community psychiatrists get this. Yes. They get the spirit. But I don't think they necessarily have enough. I'm not sure they totally are as expert as I would like them to be in terms of the techniques. But I think the, the general medic healthcare world is still in the, you've come to the right place, do what I tell you, and everything's going to go fine. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about, but I do think it fits in line with a lot of individuals from the AACP and in the community psychiatry field would really be kind of rah, rah, yeah, this makes so much sense. But it's it's also important to talk about this in all kinds of different circles and, and, and help us understand. And, and I think it's it's interesting to hear how you talk about the spirit being kind of at the core of recovery-oriented or person-centered care and that MI kind of fits as a part of that. And I, I'd love to hear you talk even a little bit more about kind of the meta processes and how that fits into how you would envision us as mental health professionals sure. being able to utilize MI and I think a, a kind of a, a more efficient and a better way to benefit our patients potentially and empower them. So you mentioned the meta processes, which is something if you study MI, you'll learn something about, but they're pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It starts with the importance of engagement. So are we going to do something here? Is there going to be a real interaction here? Are we talking? And one thing that's important is MI is not, it doesn't, some people say, oh, you psychiatrists, when I talk to general medical people or people in other fields, you, they have this idea that we have these long-standing relationships and we have people lying on couches five days a week or, you know, for years. <laughs> and I remind them that I spend a lot of time in emergency room settings. And I'm talking about a conversation that could be 10 minutes long one time with no follow. But that conversation starts with looking in each other's eyes and saying, are we, are we going to do something here? Are we connecting? Yes. So engagement. Are we going to walk somewhere? Focusing. If so, where are we going to go? And do we have the same thing in mind? You may want to go out the door. I may want you to go someplace safe. But let's focus. So are we going to walk somewhere? Where are we going to go? Evoking. Why would you want to go What's in it for you? I want to know, not imposing, evoking. And then finally, planning. And we helpers, we love to jump to planning. Mm -hmm. That's what we Yes, we do. And planning is great when the time is right. And from an MI perspective, if you don't have engagement, if you don't establish a focus, if you have not evoked, then whatever plan you come up with is less likely to be helpful. And we have to remember that those are not necessarily linear that that engagement sometimes is there and then falls apart and you you're in a conversation and it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere and you realize i think i just i don't think the engagement is here anymore i gotta i gotta work that so i think the engagement the focusing the evoking those are all just basic person-centered 
Super. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sounds like they're a little bit kind of not a straight line, but the kind of thing you may have to turn back and reset or or kind of go Absolutely. across. All of I think I think all of helping is like that. I mean, I often will get residents who say like, I had this great session and I did MI and and they were ready to move. And then two weeks later, it's like it never happened. You know, mm-hmm. what was wrong? Mm-hmm. And it was first of all, well, like MI is not something you do to people. It's something you do with people. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's wrong. You didn't, you know. But the other thing is recognizing that change tends to take place in sort of a, a spiral pattern, right? And your hope is that the overall trajectory is toward change. And and we should expect that there'll be forward movement and backward movement, but that overall we want to push, help the person move down sort of a readiness to change mm-hmm. spectrum, right? So the, you know, for Chaska and DiClemente, stages are change model, right? So you, your goal is not to get to the person, to fix the person. You're, you're you know, goes, goes from a smoker to a non-smoker. How many times is that going to happen in a session? But can you nudge, can you be a part of moving that person from being sort of pre-contemplative to con- from contemplative to preparative? You know, can you, and can you document that? that? That's what you did today. You know, you didn't cure anybody today, but I think he was a little further down the line in that, and, and I document that. And and I know we're, we're kind of rambling here, but I, I wanted to also make the point that one of the biggest things that happened with me when I kind of made this change, and by the way, I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. Like I I get to when when I'm with a patient, the door's closed. Mm-hmm. I get to choose a lot of how we spend our time. And some of that is going to be questions that I have to ask, but but I can I can choose what I do in that room. And I chose to spend my time differently. And um what I was saying is that when I started measuring my success, like what am I trying to accomplish here? And if I'm trying to get people to sort of make these changes and acquiesce and do what I want them to do, quit smoking, start taking their meds, you know, lose 30 pounds, whatever it may be, I fail most of the time. Of course. Yeah. When I partner, when I get the opportunity to sort of partner with somebody and kind of get in there, get with them, and hopefully see if we can make that trajectory generally heading that direction. And again, even if I'm seeing the person once, if I if there's an opportunity and we do something together and I feel like maybe they've moved a little bit, mm-hmm. then I succeed a whole lot more of the time. And one of the biggest things that I personally found and that almost anybody who is deeply into this stuff will tell you is that their own personal burnout got a whole lot better. I feel a lot less crispy at the end of a long clinical day than I used to. And one of the things I'm interested in right now is in if we really kind of go back to seeing the clinical interaction as the kind of sacred space, the, the refuge, if it will, from all of the incoming that we do all day. It's the only time we get to like not have to answer our email. We can be with a person. That can be really resilience building, anti-burnoutogenic. So it's another reason I'm really passionate about it. It sounds like you're also saying here that it, it really just helps us to reset our expectations as providers, which I think we often tend to set because we're often working in structured settings and have certain, sometimes we have measurable outcomes that are looked at from different entities and saying, this is how we're going to look at success. And if you're not achieving this, 
then that's not successful. But you, you're kind of taking a step back and saying, well, what does it really mean for you and the patient? What does it really mean for you and the person you're partnering with? And how yeah, is but, that measured? Yeah, but I also don't want to, I don't want to say that those outcomes don't matter. Of course. If the outcomes are good. I want those outcomes. I'm actually saying that I think I'm getting those outcomes quicker and better. Mm. style. But I'm also, it's this myth. I mean, this idea that, that our job is to fix people, that's the broken idea. We can't fix people. We just can't. I mean, I we, we you can't I can't make another person do anything that that person doesn't choose to do. And we work in coercive settings, correctional or carceral settings, inpatient psychiatric emergency room settings where we can tie people down and inject them with medicines against their will. Mm-hmm. I can delay their bad behaviors. I can, you know, hold them. I can't really make anybody change. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's like if, if I think my job is to make you different, you know, make you do something, then I'm going to fail, fix you. If I think my job is to get to get to be a part of your journey and bring my expertise to the table and hopefully help guide the part of you that that I believe in most people, the part that there is change talk in all of us. Nobody wants to continue down these roads. They may say they do. They may think they do. But I think people ultimately are going to do what they're going to do. And if they get good guidance, they're going to do better than if they don't. It makes so much sense. And I'd love to hear, especially you know, because there might be some individuals out there who have had a little bit of community psychiatry experience and might think, well, you know, on a rotation or, or, you know, in the setting I work, I have had limited interaction with people. Sometimes I, they don't really want to spend a lot of time with me. Sometimes they kind of disappear for a little bit and come back depending on the setting that, that you might work in. And I'm wondering if you have any kind of pointers for partic- in particular, those working in community psychiatry to kind of utilize MI and, and what, what could that look like? What are some of the special considerations there? How is this more than just some, something that we would use for somebody suffering from a substance use disorder or something like that? Well, I just think that I would emphasize the importance of engagement. So when they're there, they're there. You know, and if they're not there, you know, you, you do what you can. But just not missing the opportunities that we have and thinking, even if we only have 5, 10, 15 minutes, but if you can meaningfully connect with someone, boy, you've done a lot right there. And if you're a medical student who doesn't have training, but you're just meaningfully connecting and learn as much as you can to be a good listener, active listening with accurate empathy. And that's part of engagement, right? So if you can sort of listen actively and be accurately empathic, you've done a ton. For many people, I feel like that's enough too, like to really just book them, especially in community psychiatry, but just in general. I mean, that's... A huge difference makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. It really does. And then, you know, in terms of pursuing this stuff, you're lucky that your medical school and residency seems like it had more of this than a lot. But there's a world out there. You know, you Google MI and you are opening yourself into a world. And you can you can learn a lot these days, especially with the pandemic. Training is used to be primarily these in-person events, but now there's tons of great podcasts and resources on MI and 
shared decision-making and all kinds of person-centered approaches. So, I mean, I, I think I think this is something that clinicians at any stage, from students to the most seasoned clinician, can have their aha moments, can not tell anybody or ask any permission, and can start doing. Like, it's a, it's a change in the way of being. Now, that's not saying that there aren't skills, right? A famous question, and this might be a good place to close, which is someone, you know, I mentioned this resident, I did MI, and someone asked, the, the, the person who wrote the very first paper coined the term MI, is still very active in the field, a guy named William Miller, and someone asked him famously, what's the difference between doing MI and being MI? And his answer was, about 10 years. <laughs> and so it's something you can start right away. And it's something that if you commit yourself to, you know, it's like changing a golf swing. It's it's going to be a little awkward at first, the, the technical piece, but uh, it gets, you know, if you make a commitment to do it, you'll swing better. And then it's this idea of being MI or being in this way, which is both in the clinic, at home, you know, anybody who has teenage kids understands the paradoxical effect of coercion in their bones. You know, it's just a good way of being. Absolutely. Well, Look, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your insights. And, and I tend to learn a lot when I talk with you, but I also kind of helps to reinforce a lot of the work I'm doing. And, I, and, and I'm very just it's been an absolute pleasure. Just any final thoughts, any parting words of wisdom or any resources you want to share that you feel would be good, especially for people earlier in their career? As I said, the, the, just just Google and motivational interviewing, you'll learn a lot. The the original guys who wrote the first textbook, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, it's, a, it's I don't know if people still read books, but this is a book that's really readable, but don't buy it because the fifth edition is coming out in August. So I if you, if you buy the current edition, I think I got this right, that the next edition is coming out in August. But at that point, it's actually a great book to have on your bookshelf. There's also another amazing book called Descent. This is like Ezra Klein, one of the three book resolutions. But there's a, a great book that Bill Miller wrote with a woman named Terry Moyers. Uh, called Essential, it's William Miller and Teresa Moyers. I think it's called Essential Psychotherapy, but it kind of boils a lot of these skills down to a very understandable and yet evidence-based. I may have screwed up that title. You can put it, the actual title in the notes. To we will find it and leave it in the notes okay. if, if we could find it for sure. But And the final thing I want to say is I just want to thank you guys for doing this because my understanding is that you're targeting younger folks. You're, you're targeting the pipeline Correct. and people who are early in their careers, people who are, I worry, who are at risk for burnout. One of the scary parts of the burnout data is that younger people seem to be burning out at higher rates than older people. So uh, I think that the, this, the efforts that are going on to sort of remind people why they went into these fields and kind of bring them back to those ideas are absolutely critical. So I thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Well, I absolutely thank you for being a part of this. Once again, his name is Dr. Michael Flum, and really appreciate you being here today. And thank you, everyone who listened, and please join us next time for our next episode of the Community Psychiatry Podcast.